Hugh Latimer was one of the uh, Oxford martyrs who was burned at the stake in 1555 during the reign of Queen Mary. On one occasion, years before he died, he was preaching during the reign of King Henry VIII, who happened to be present during that sermon. And now knowing that he was about to say something that the king was not going to be pleased with, he soliloquized to himself in the pulpit, out loud. He said, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say, Henry the king is here. And then he paused for a moment, and again, speaking out loud, he said, Latimer, 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 be careful what you say, the king of kings is here. That is a kind of textbook case of a good fear dominating a bad fear. Or to put it in another way, it was Latimer seeing a priority greater than safety. If faithfulness to Christ meant being on the wrong side of the king, then being on the wrong side of the king was the only option. There was not really another option for him. The priority was faithfulness over self-preservation. And you might say that that's essentially the reckoning that Peter and John made when they were standing before the Sanhedrin. Now, oftentimes, that kind of prioritization can be driven by holy fear. John Knox, the reformer, it was said of him when he was buried, here lies one who feared God so much, he never feared the face of man. See, if you have that one holy fear, that right, reverent fear of God, that is to be the fear that dominates all other fears. And if you have that fear, it's likely a witness to the fact that you have come to believe the gospel and you don't have to fear God. You've been reconciled to him, but you carry that reverential fear of him. Well, Peter and John, they're in this fearful situation. If you don't remember the details, I will rehearse some of them. But the question that we essentially asked towards the end of last week was, would a potential fear of further persecution bring an end to their gospel propagation? We'll see that as we create a little context. You remember that Peter and John, they were mightily used by God to heal a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. And what did they get for their ministry? They got a night in prison. And then the next day, they had to stand before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. That same Sanhedrin that broke their own laws and broke God's law in an effort to hand Jesus over to Pilate to be executed. They didn't take well to Peter and John preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they had some problems besides their broken moral compass. They thought, if you read in Acts chapter 4, verse 14, they really didn't know what to do because the man was actually healed and he was standing right there before them. So when Peter and John are brought before the ruling council in one way or another, that formerly lame man is standing right there. And they are looking at the lame man and they're like, okay, we can't really say anything against the fact that this man's been healed. He's right there. His legs are working. He's standing. He wasn't even sitting before them. He was standing in front of them. We also find out in verse 15 that the Sanhedrin basically called a timeout. They're like, all right, we need to think about this. So they tell Peter and John to step, step aside. They want to confer among themselves. They discuss the problem, quote unquote, of not being able to deny the miracle because it was so evident to all who were in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 4, verse 16. But they had to, in their minds, they had to stop the spread of the association between this lame man's healing and Jesus Christ and his resurrection. They had to stop that. 
So what did they decide to do? You see this in essentially verses 17 and 18. They call Peter and John back in and they severely threaten them. Threatening them apparently with bodily harm, commanding them to no longer speak or teach in Jesus' name. No interpersonal conversations about Jesus, no public preaching about Jesus. If you do that, it's not going to work out so well for you, they were essentially telling the apostles. So what would Peter and John's reaction be? You got it, sirs. We will go into early apostolic retirement. It's been a short run, but it has been impactful. And we are weighing our circumstances here, and it seems like self-preservation, as opposed to gospel proclamation, is the right choice for us at this time. Thank you for your time. That's not what they said. They also didn't say, okay, since you are in positions of authority, it behooves us to obey you, even if obedience to you means disobedience to God. They didn't say that either. What they said is found in the second half of Acts chapter 4, verse 19 and verse 20. They say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. You make that call. Seems pretty self-evident to us. If you think the right thing to do is to obey you rather than obey God, right? God had called them to be witnesses. If you think that's right, you got the freedom to choose that. But for them, they said, for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You see, they prioritized doing what was right, obeying God and preaching the gospel over doing what was safe, obeying the council's command to disobey God. And part of what drove that prioritization was a compulsion. They're like, we have to tell people about what we've seen and heard. We've seen Jesus die. We've seen him as a, the live, resurrected Messiah come back from the dead. We have to proclaim these things. Doubtless, they were even recalling what they saw during his earthly ministry. All those miracles, the, the people who were healed and raised from the dead and so on, witnessing to the fact that he was the Messiah. They were saying, we cannot but speak of the things which we have seen and heard, regardless of the cost. So how would this first encounter with the Sanhedrin play out? Well, we find out in the first verses of our passage today. We begin in Acts chapter 4, verses 21 and 22, where we read, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. So Peter and John's response was not met with applause. It was not met with contrition. It was met with further threatening. That's the way that those in positions of power often respond to these kind of situations. It's not a debate. It's not a discussion. They resorted to further threatening. At this point in time, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, they couldn't see themselves as doing more. Not because they were constrained by the justice of God or the righteousness of God. It wasn't that. They said it was because of the people. That's Luke's account, and that's essentially what they were saying, since they all glorified God for what had been done. In other words, if the council punished Peter and John, the people would have perceived the injustice of that. Like, you're doing what to these men? You're beating them? You're imprisoning them? Maybe even killing them for what? This man, we knew him at the temple. We saw him when we would go to the temple. He has been lame every day that he's been sitting here. And if they punished Peter and John, the people would have likely have risen up and it would have undercut the authority of the council. You see, for Peter and John, there was a priority that was greater than self-preservation. 
But for the Sanhedrin, the priority was self-preservation. So they're like, okay, we can't persecute them. But I want you to notice, look at what the sovereign God does. He uses their own sinful attempts at self-preservation to actually preserve the apostles at this time. So he not only used the public nature of the miracle, he used their own sinfulness to preserve Peter and John at this time. I think it's a reminder to you and I that God is the God who is able to make both circumstances and sinfulness serve his purposes. More about that a little bit later on in this message. Well, one of the reasons why the people glorified God, you see it in verse 22, because the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This is a kind of witness to the veracity, to the truthfulness, to the magnitude of the miracle. It wasn't like this man was lame for a few weeks. This man had been lame his entire life, even from his mother's womb, up until yesterday in the text. It was an amazing miracle. As a brief aside, I want to call your attention to this. You're going to see this a lot in the book of Acts. You see it a lot in the Gospel of Luke. Look at Luke's attention to detail here on display. He's providing you a detail that this man had been like this from his mother's womb. He was over 40 years old. You go through Luke's Gospels, you'll see this kind of thing over and over again. I've told you before of the famous archaeologist, Sir William Ramsey, who went to Asia Minor to do a topographical study of the first century. And when he went there, he originally thought not to use Luke's gospel. He was under the influence of like the German school of higher criticism, and he thought Luke's gospel was a, and Luke and Acts were second century writings, that they came later, that somebody just kind of wrote them later on and so on. But he was encouraged by someone, I believe a believer, to use Luke and Acts in his archaeological searches and so on. And he noted that he came to find Luke's writing as, quote, a very useful ally in some obscure and difficult investigations. He also noted Luke is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements, in fact, trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. He even noted this. Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Why do I tell you that? Because I want to communicate the words of this former skeptic about the reliability of Luke's writings to you who are sitting here. When you're hearing God's word taught, you're not only hearing theology, you're hearing accurate history. So when you go through Luke's writings and you see Luke chronicling the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, or where you see him speaking about somebody being lame for this long, or a woman having an issue of blood for this many years, you are seeing the, the Holy Spirit superintend this historian, as it were, to provide you not only with theology, but with accurate and factual history. Well, back to the text. Some weeks ago I told you that in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4, you're going to see a series of dominoes fall, three of them, that lead to the last one. The first domino to fall was the lame man's healing. You remember that led to the platform for Peter's preaching, and John as well. And then that was going to lead to the church's initial persecution. Peter and John being arrested overnight, and then uh, imprisoned overnight, and then threatened the next day. And now that's going to lead shortly, soon enough, to the church's praying. Verse 23 reads, And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
So the Sanhedrin let them go with severe warnings, threats against their well-being, and these parties will meet again. For now, the encounter is over. Stay tuned. They will meet again. And it's not only going to be Peter and John this time, it's going to be the apostles, and it's not going to end like this. That's coming up in our study of the book of Acts. But here, it's important to note them being let go. I want you to note where they went. So beginning of verse 23, being let go, you want to ask the question, where did they go? They went to their own companions. You see the word companions is italicized. Translators are including that in the text to help you get an idea of what's meant. Literally, it's that they went to their own. The idea, as, we, as we're going to see, is they went to the church. They went to believers. They went to other people who had trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, and they report to them everything that happened. They wanted them to be informed, instructed, and prepared and forewarned. They told them what the chief priests, Annas, Caiaphas, likely the leaders of the priestly divisions and so on, what they had said to them. What I want you to notice is that they didn't isolate themselves, thinking that nobody cared. They didn't believe lies thinking that nobody would understand. They didn't try to work it out on their own. They immediately went to where the believers were gathered. Maybe they knew that there was a meeting. Maybe they knew that there was a time of prayer going on. We don't know exactly, but they knew where to go. They knew where the believers were. And let me provide you with a little bit of pastoral counsel right here. Let me advise you. You know that in the Christian life, so often the right things don't always feel like the instinctive things to do because we have a fallen nature, a sinful nature. There is a sense when you go through Galatians and Galatians 5, there's a sense in which we have kind of two instincts at work. We have our fallen sinful nature, and to use language from uh, Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3, we have this new man who's being renewed in the image of our creator and so on. We have these two natures, as it were, at work. Therefore, let me encourage you to seek to make, as it were, Peter and John's initial instincts your own, if it isn't already. In times of distress, but not only in times of distress, make it a priority, even as they did, to assemble with the people of God more and more. That latter part's not just pastoral advice. Hebrews 10.25 tells the people of God, as you see the day of Christ approaching, assemble all the more. Seize opportunities to be around the people of God, to pray together, to exhort one another in the scriptures, and so on. Now, that's a little bit of instruction we can get just by way of their reaction. But there's more. We're not only going to learn from Peter and John's reaction, we're going to learn from the church's reaction to Peter and John's update. Look at verse 24. So when they heard that, <clears throat> that is the believers that were gathered, gathered when they heard that, the update from Peter and John, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So we don't know how this exactly played itself out. But think about this. They go to the church. They provide an update to the church. The gist is easy to get. They provide the summation. And we're told the church raised their voice to God with one accord. They prayed. Prayer wasn't plan B. Prayer was plan A. Prayer wasn't their last resort. Prayer was their first reflex. 
They didn't try a whole bunch of other things. Like, let's go back to talk to the Sanhedrin. Let's bring them some chocolates or something. Let's, you know, maybe they just had a bad day. Let's appeal to them. And then when we exhaust everything else, if there's nothing left that, that we could do, then we will pray. That wasn't their mindset. They didn't come around and try a whole bunch of other things and say, all right, all we could do now is pray. Instead, the first thing that they do, essentially, after the update, is they pray. Look at the text. Verse 24, look at the beginning. So when they heard this, they raised their voice to God. A little bit more pastoral counsel here. One of the most important things in the Christian life is cultivating proper reactions. For example, right? Whereas in times past, if somebody offended you, right? Somebody said something that was wrong to you or offended you in some way, maybe you would harbor bitterness in your heart. Or maybe you would tell untold amounts of people about what had happened. The prescription that Jesus gives is you go right to them and you talk to them. You cultivate that reaction. So if somebody offends you, you're like, okay, I don't have to harbor this in my heart. I don't have to tell untold amounts of people about it. I need to go to them first. I need to try to make it right with them. And if that doesn't work, I follow Jesus' prescription in Matthew 18. There's a whole bunch of ways in which cultivating proper reactions in the Christian life can work out. There was a Superbook episode that was on in the house yesterday, and um, one of the characters in it was talking about having seen something, I guess on the, the, the interweb is what they had called it, and saying, okay, I saw something that I, I shouldn't have seen, what do I do, and so on. And you want to cultivate the proper reaction as a Christian. What do you do if that kind of thing happens? Well, I would say you pull the plug, as it were, immediately, and you tell that to somebody. Because you don't have to live in the dark. You could just talk and you could be open, right? Whether it's with a parent or a spouse or whoever it might be. You're cultivating these proper reactions as a Christian. Well, you see here, the church had an important reaction that we could learn from. In the midst of a painful and difficult situation, the fear of persecution is right on their doorstep, as it were. They prayed. Now, a few things I want you to note about how they prayed here. So if you want to learn about prayer, this is a passage right here to help us learn how to pray. First, I want you to know that there was unity. Look at the text, verse 24. They raised their voice with one accord. You can see their unity connoted in at least two ways here. They raised their voice, phoning, singular in the Greek. Yeah, they were doubtless probably praying in different times and so on, raising their voices, but the language here is voice, as though they were all reflecting one unified voice, kind of like a choir with a whole bunch of voices singing in harmony. And, and, and as they do so, they kind of form one voice with that sound that comes out together. That's what the church was doing. They were in one accord. Second, I want you to notice that they focused on who God was as they began to pray. They didn't just start with their need. They started with who God was. They said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And I want you to know it's a good rule of thumb for prayer. That's how you and I should start in prayer. Granted, yes, there are times, like in Psalm 12. If you read Psalm 12, you know how David begins that psalm, that spirit-inspired psalm in prayer? Help, Lord. And there are times in your life, there are times in my life, where the first words that come out of my mouth in prayer in a given moment are those. Help, Lord. You're actually quoting scripture when you say that. But I think as a general rule of thumb, we would do well to learn to focus our minds on who God is when we begin to pray. This is how Jesus essentially taught his disciples to pray. The Our Father, that prayer that is known as the Lord's Prayer, 
the disciples' prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, think of how it begins. Our Father who is in heaven. Right? So you're starting already. You're in the presence of God and you're remembering that God is the Father. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's not only your, fa- your Father in the creational sense, he's your Father in the relational sense. For all who believe in Christ, he gives them the right to be called children of God. John chapter 1, verse 12. So you're starting off and you're remembering that God is a Father. You're not coming to him and just saying king or you know, mighty ruler. You're saying Father. And you're remembering that he is holy. He's enthroned in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. He rules over all. He's exalted, high and lifted up. That's where you're beginning. And you're not even stopping there. You continue, right? Our Father who art in heaven or who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or let your name be regarded as holy. So you're remembering that he is holy. He is light in whom there is no darkness. He is perfectly pure. He is intrinsically set apart. Nobody set him apart. He is just eternally, intrinsically set apart. He's the one true God. And you're desiring that his name would be regarded as holy. And then before you lift up your petitions, you're praying for his will to be done and his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. See how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? I mean, there's a place for asking for daily bread. There's a place for saying, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from the evil one, and so on. There's a place for saying, I know you've forgiven me positionally in Christ, but practically I'm looking for forgiveness and I'm sorry for my sins. There's a place for all of that. But look where Jesus taught his disciples to start. It's the same place where the apostles are essentially in the church is praying right here. They're focusing on who God is. Let me encourage you to do that. Start with a God focus, a kingdom focused, and so on. And there's something else that I want you to see about how they prayed, but first a couple of notes here. They begin with recalling God's omnipotent sovereignty. That's always a really good place to begin, but especially when you are being persecuted for preaching that Jesus is the only way through which men and women can be saved from the wrath of God in the lake of fire. When you are facing persecution, it's good to remember that God is in control. So note this, their reflection was not only God-honoring, it was, it was very relevant to their situation. That ultimately the Sanhedrin wasn't in control, God was in control. Notice, they use also right here the word Lord that they use. It's not the usual word that's used. Kurios is the usual word for Lord. They use a word here in the Greek that is despotes. Despotes. It sounds like our English word despot, doesn't it? And the etymology of the word despot actually goes back to this Greek word. Good reminder, the meaning of words often change over time. So when you think of a despot, you don't get any warm and fuzzies, right? No, you don't. But that word has come to mean something that it didn't mean when they were using it. The idea of the word despotes in the Greek, a word in the New Testament used for Jesus and used for the Father, it speaks of one who is the absolute ruler, the absolute master, the absolute sovereign. Makes sense that they would appeal to God as that one. And he wasn't that or isn't that in a tyrannical or cruel way, but he is the sovereign, absolute master over all. And note, note in the text here, verse 24 still, note how his sovereignty is demonstrated in his omnipotence. He is the one who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. So he made heaven. Everything in heaven, he's ultimately the author of that. He made the heavenly city. He made the cherubim and he made the seraphim. 
He made it all. He made the sea of glass and so on. And what you see in the book of Revelation, he is the maker of heaven and all that is in it. He is the one who made earth and all that is in it. Squirrels, turkeys, elephants, dogs, insects, rocks. You're like, is he going to name like everything he can on earth? You could. It's kind of fun. I did a little bit of it. Giraffes and trees, people and mountains. He made them all. He's the ultimate creator and he's the originator from which these species have propagated and so on. He made the sea and all that is in it. Now, if you know anything about my kids, you know they love sea creatures. So I could tell you about a whole bunch of creatures in the sea that I don't really know much about, but they know more about. Colossal squids, orcas, oarfish, coconut octopus, vampire squid, giant squid, cuttlefish, bow-headed whales, humpback whales, bottlenose dolphins, penguins, walruses, water bears, and the list goes on. He made it all. And we would do well to think about these things. You'd see if you read through Revelation, Revelation chapter 14, there's an angel who's proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And one of the things that he reminds creation about is that every tribe, nation, tongue, and people should worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So if you need a cause for worship, go outside and marvel at the compassion of God. You don't live in a world where all of a sudden you go out and there's nothing but oppressive heat and you can barely breathe and the sky is all gray and there is no sunshine and there is no color. Even the creation itself in this fallen world witnesses to the power and the compassion of God. You go outside and you may be in rebellion against God. You may be rejecting Christ, but yet his sun shines on you. You can have a nice meal. You can go for a jog. You can do all of these things and it witnesses to God's kindness, even to a people, humanity, who are largely in rebellion against him. He made it all and all that is in it. Ultimately, he is the creator and he ought to be worshiped. And if you worship him for being the creator, how much more should you worship him for being the redeemer who sent his son to die for the sins of people like you and me? So you start with worshiping him for creation and then you start worshiping him for salvation. The creator entered creation and he died for the sins of rebellious creatures that he's sustaining at every moment. And he still gives them rain. He still gives them beautiful days. He still gives them air to breathe. The earth doesn't freeze. The earth doesn't burn up. And we are here. And he's so compassionate. But the greatest display of his compassion is found in him sending his son to do what we can never do. To absorb the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to spend eternity in the lake of fire. But by repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ... All of our sins could be blotted out. What a God. What a God. So I want you to note how they prayed. It's instructive for us. As a church, they prayed in unity. I also wanted you to note that they're focusing on who God is. That's where they're starting. But the third thing I want you to note, and you even see it here in verse 24, but you're going to see it more in verses 25 and 26. They are praying with reference to Scripture. They're essentially doing that right here in this verse. This verse reads as it reads, and we've read it, but I want to read to you Psalm 146, verse 6, which says that God, uh, the God of Jacob, Yahweh, is the one who, quote, made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. It's just like scripture oozed out. Let me tell you something that I think is important. Sometimes people can make this mistake. There could be some times where people could say, I pray to God all the time, and that could be a very good thing if you're praying to the true God of heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. But sometimes what can happen, people could say, I talk to God all the time. 
but then they're not reading the scriptures. So it's as though you have a relationship where you like to speak to an individual but not hear from him. Right? Imagine a relationship like that. You know, I talk to my mom all the time, but I don't let her talk to me. <laughs> like, you don't want it to be like that. You want to speak to God, and you want to hear him speak to you. And how does he speak to you? He speaks to you through the living and abiding word of God. Now, apparently, they had been doing that for some time, hearing his voice in the scriptures, because when they're praying, the scripture is just oozing out. Well, now they're going to go on. And in verses 25 through 27, we are going to see them reference Psalm 2 and how they essentially saw it applied. Beginning at verse 25, we read, Who, talking about God, who, by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Now there's much that I could say about this verse, but I want to call your attention to a few things. Look at the beginning of verse 25. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said. I want to call your attention to an important opportunity to learn the theology of scripture right here. You're being taught how scripture came to be right here. At the beginning of verse 25, who is the who that is speaking? It's God. How did God speak? Look at verse 25 at the beginning. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said. So God spoke through David speaking, ultimately superintending David's words in Psalm 2, so that what David said is what God said. You want to have this view of scripture. If you don't have this view of Scripture, you have a view of Scripture that is different than the view of Scripture that Jesus had. I'll give you three examples of that briefly. In um, Matthew 22, Jesus quoted Exodus chapter 3, verse 6 to the Sadducees, which was a passage written by Moses. And Jesus prefaced his quotation of that by saying this, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? So Jesus' view was that Moses, who wrote Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, was actually writing what God would be speaking. So you had a human author, but God so superintended the human author to ensure that what was written was actually his word, his revelation. Jesus does this kind of thing. He said in Matthew um, 19, for instance, verse 5, that Genesis 2.24 Another scripture that was written, he said, it was what God said. So for Jesus, what scripture said is what God said. For Jesus, what the scripture said is what God was saying. Have you not read what was spoken to you, even his contemporaries, by God? One more example briefly of Christ here. Jesus said that David spoke by the Holy Spirit in writing Psalm 110 verse 1. You see that in Matthew 22, verses 43 and 44. Why do I say that here? Because when you see the church praying in Acts chapter 4, verse 25, when they say, who by the mouth of God, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, they're reflecting Jesus' view of Scripture. That God spoke through human authors that he superintended to make sure that what they wrote was the holy word of God. So now they're quoting Scripture, they're quoting Psalm 2. 
They're talking about how the nations raged and the people plotted in vain. And at Jesus' crucifixion and leading up to it, you had Jews and Gentiles alike raging. The Greek word here speaks of like a horse kind of neighing uncontrollably. It's like they just wanted to get at Jesus. Whether it was the Sanhedrin that sought to put him to death, whether it's the Romans who beat him and asked him, prophesy, tell us who struck you, and so on. They raged against him, but they also plotted in vain. They wanted to do away with him once and for all, but they couldn't. It was vain. The word here speaks of being that which is empty. They actually, as we're going to see, accomplished God's eternal purpose. The kings of the earth took their stand. That seems to be reflected in Herod, who's kind of a representative leader of the Jews, and Pilate, who was a representative leader of the Romans. And the rulers were gathered together. We see this in the second half of verse 26. That could speak to the Sanhedrin as well as um, Herod and Pilate. And they were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. Jesus spoke about despising the Son as despising the Father. If you reject the Son, you reject the one who sent him. So they rebelled not only against Christ, but to rebel against the Son is to rebel against the Father. And even, you'll notice in verse 27, he even includes here, the church does, all the people of Israel, or and the people of Israel. Matthew 27 verse 20 says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So they see a fulfillment of Psalm 2 in what happened to Christ. And now watch where they go in verse 28. In verse 28 they say, To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Behold the mysterious power of God's sovereignty. I've told you before and I'll tell you again and I hope you memorize this little phrase here. That God, when you look at the scriptures, sovereignly, sinlessly, superintends the actions of mankind, even the evil actions of men and women. You see that here. They're rebelling against Christ. They're rebelling against the God of heaven. Yet God is so superintending that so that what they did would fulfill God's purpose. God's predetermined purpose. That's Acts chapter 4, verse 28. They weren't trying to fulfill God's sovereign purpose. They were trying to fulfill their evil desires. They weren't trying to fulfill prophecy. They were trying to execute Jesus. They meant to execute their will. But unbeknownst to them, they were actually executing God's plan. You can't stop the sovereign God of the universe. You will either be his servant, having your eyes open to the gospel, or you can end up like these individuals, rebelling against him, yet even your rebellion is used to further his eternal purposes in some way, shape, or form. This is amazing. Why would this be important for them? This would be important for them to remember that because they were on the receiving end now of threats from people in positions of power. So it would be helpful for them to remember that God was the one in control. And that God, the same God who causes all things to work together after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11, is the same God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28. They needed to remember, you might say, that God was still on the throne. You know, when you see evil abounding in the world, in a society, and so on, you can start wondering, like, what's going on? Like, is God in control? You, you can think about those who stood by the cross, and they're seeing Jesus die. Like, is God in control? Is God sovereign? What's going on here? 
And God is taking the most wicked act of men and women, the sinless, spotless Son of God, and He was actually using that to accomplish the greatest good ever. To redeem men and women so that they might glorify Him for His grace forever. God is in control. Ray Stedman told a story uh, some years back of how he was ministering in England and he was preaching in some churches in the London area. And while he was preaching at one church, it was a crowded chapel. There were many who were singing the chorus, Our God Reigns. And he said that he was amused to uh, see in the song sheet uh, from which the congregation was singing an error that the typist had made in the hymn. It didn't read, Our God Reigns. It actually read, Our God Resigns. (laughs) And the point that he makes in light of that, which I think is a good one, he says many Christians act as if God has resigned. But he's not. Our God reigns. And don't let the working of evil make you think God is not reigning. He is sovereignly, sinlessly superintending all things after the counsel of his will. And he is is actually using all things for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Let's close our study of this passage by looking at verses 29 and 30, and then the result in verse 31. I want you to see what they do here, verse 29. It's amazing. They say, Now, Lord, look on their threats, and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. This is so instructive for prayer. I want to call your attention to specifically what they did not pray. Do you see what they did not pray? You were probably waiting for it. I'd be waiting for it. Okay, now they're going to pray, God, protect us from these malicious rulers. They don't get there. They don't say, please give us personal security. They had a priority greater than safety. They had a priority greater than comfort. They had a priority greater than the defeat of those who were in opposition to the proclamation of Jesus' name. They asked God. They said, God, look on their threats. They don't tell God how to act. They say, God, would you just take notice of this? We know you do. But would you just see what they're doing here? God, would you look upon their threats? And then what do they move to? They rose above their base instincts of mere self-preservation, and they prayed that they might have boldness to keep speaking God's word. That's what they sought. What was the priority? The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the proclamation of the gospel. Is it wrong to pray for personal security? Is it wrong to pray for God to protect you and so on? No, we see the Apostle Paul reference that in his, his epistles, praying for people who, that they might be delivered from wicked and unreasonable men and so on. But I want you to learn from the priority here. Their priority was the proclamation of the gospel. Help us to keep speaking. They had spoken with boldness, but they knew they were dependent on God to keep speaking with boldness, and so they prayed for it. And they prayed that God would keep bearing witness to the word that they preached with signs and wonders. And he indeed would do that. But there would also be a result right there. In verse 31 we read, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. Echoes of Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, And they spoke the word of God with boldness. So they were filled, passive. They prayed, they sought God. They were filled with the Holy Spirit afresh. They were under his influence. And the imperfect tense of the verb that's used here for spoke suggests they kept on speaking the word with boldness. We're going to see that over and over again in the book of Acts, especially in the near chapters. Quick bit of application for you and I. Not always. 
oftentimes, not often, does God answer prayers in the positive that quickly. But in this case, he did. (laughs) They prayed, and they were immediately empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. If you don't pray, you don't have the opportunities to see this kind of answer to prayer. Sometimes you'll wait for years and you'll rejoice. Sometimes you'll wait for years and you'll find out that the answer was no and you're happy it was no. You're like, I'm so glad you didn't answer that prayer in the yes, Lord. And sometimes, though, he'll answer quickly. And you may say, wait, look what they got to see. They got to see a room shaking. How cool was that? I've been to a lot of prayer meetings. I've never seen that happen. But I have seen the results that they saw. People emboldened to preach the word of God. And you and I should be more excited about people being emboldened to speak the word of God than a room shaking. Even though it would be pretty amazing to see a room shaking. And then the inference of that would be the Holy Spirit had flooded that place as it were. And so that would be really exciting. But that's in God's prerogative. My concluding thought to you all is simply this. In Psalm chapter 2, those rulers that were spoken of are described as taking counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. But it also gives us some insights to their thinking. And I close here. It describes them as saying, let us break their bonds, talking about Yahweh and his anointed. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they saw submission to the living God as oppressive. It's an oppressive yoke. We don't want it. We'd rather avoid it. It's like all of mankind saying to the Father, we will not have your Son to reign over us. James Montgomery Boyce put it this way, Sin is telling God, I will not have you to be my Lord or my God. You could be God for somebody else, but not for me. You could be Lord for somebody else, but not for me. I want to be my own God and Lord. I would exhort you, having already shared the gospel with you multiple times in this message, I close by saying, reject such folly and receive God's Son. Don't refuse the only way of escaping the holy wrath of the righteous God of the universe. Repent and receive Jesus as who he is, the Lord over you, and believe by God's grace that he is the Savior who died for you. Peter said it earlier, and I'll say it to you again, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, you are holy exalted, sovereign God of the universe. May you help us, Father, to pray with unity, to pray in light of Scripture. May you help us to pray with focusing first on you, Lord. And thank you that you are the God who tells us to ask you for daily bread and for protection and so on from temptation, etc. But Father, help us to learn from the church here in Acts 4 to have a priority greater than safety namely your glory and the furtherance of the gospel. Thank you, Father, for this text. Thank you for the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you add to the number of those who see him as Lord and gather and assemble with the church and glorify you for being who you are, the Lord of heaven and earth, the maker of heaven, earth, the sea, and all that is in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.